Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast, a fortnightly discussion all about success, modern business and the lives of entrepreneurs. I'm Joe Bullmore, I'll be your host for the day, and I'm joined this afternoon by Simon Kidston, perhaps the best-known vintage car broker and connoisseur in the world. Born into a motoring family, Simon was destined to work with cars, and what he doesn't know about the things really isn't worth knowing. Today, he's a world authority and private advisor who helps the likes of Ralph Lauren and Mark Newsom get their hands on some of the rarest cars on the planet. In a very enjoyable episode, Simon tells us how you make your own luck, how to build a career out of your passion, and how he once took the Batmobile for a joyride. But before we start this episode, I'd love to tell you very briefly about The Clubhouse, a new kind of private members club brought to you by Gentleman's Journal. Clubhouse members get four issues of Gentleman's Journal magazine delivered straight to their door across the year, full of all those invaluable insights from the world of entrepreneurship, style and culture that you'd hope for, as well as, of course, some exclusive deals with a range of partner brands, restaurants and hotels, not to mention invitations to some very exciting events across the year. In fact, if you're a podcast listener, which you obviously are, you now get 20% off your annual Clubhouse membership, meaning you get the full Gentleman's Journal experience in full colour for just £56 a year, which sounds a bit like a bargain to me. To get that, just enter the code POD20, that's P-O-D-2-0, at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. That's POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. Right, let's get on with the podcast. Simon, thanks very much for joining us on the Gentleman's Journal podcast. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to have your uh, your tones here, your your beautiful voice, because you're the commentator, or you were at least, for Mille Miglia, which I've said wrong, I'm sure, for many years. Mille Miglia. Mille Miglia. Much I, better. I, I, yeah, I did the commentary for the Mille Miglia from, I think, 2007 until 2014, when a new organization took over the running of it. But I've been doing the commentary for the Villa d'Este Conco, at the uh, famous course. hotel on Lake Como, since 2000. So I've been doing that now for 20 years almost. And I suppose you're best known as a car broker and a car collector, probably one of the best known in the world, maybe at this point, with classic cars, I'd say. Oh, you're making me blush. <laughs> um, but I wonder how, how you first got into them. Were you born, did you grow up with cars around you? I was uh, born into what I would describe as a motoring family. My father always loved cars, fast cars, and always had whatever the, the latest fast mm. car was. Nothing, nothing that I would describe as flashy, but just ruthlessly efficient, like okay. a, a Porsche 911, for example. Um, and he was quite old when I was born. He was 57 when I was, when I was born. So he was born in 1910. I'm... Oh. I'm I'm 51, I was born in 67. And um, I grew up surrounded by stories of, uh, well, in the 1920s I had this Bugatti, and in the 1930s I had this Mercedes, and I, I raced it, and I took it down to New Zealand with me when I was stationed there in the Navy, et cetera, et cetera. So it was always a, a motoring and, uh, and flying family. We had a, a landing strip at home at our farm in Dorset with a small hangar and a small Cessna in it. Wow. So cars and planes and boats as well, for that matter, were always part of the, okay. part of the mix. But um, nobody was in the car business. Right. They were all uh, naval officers or army officers, and this was just a hobby. Uh, well, am I right in thinking that you had a, an uncle or great uncle who was an actual racing driver at one point? Uh, a gentleman driver, okay, I think fine. I'd say. That was my father's elder brother, who was also in the Navy. He was also a lieutenant commander. 
Uh, he was 11 years older. He actually fought in the First World War wow. um, and survived being sunk twice in one day at the Battle of Jutland. And then after the war, when I guess a lot of people found life was a bit sedate, mm -hmm. uh, took up motorcycle racing, followed by car racing, and also um, setting aviation records. And he, yeah. he raced at Le Mans a couple of times. He came second on his first attempt in 1929, and he won in 1930. And yeah. then the next year, he set the record between London and Cape Town in his plane, uh, but was then killed flying soon afterwards. But my father was um, equally interested, but didn't race at yeah. the same level, just raced at a, a local level and uh, I guess kept the flag flying. And so I, I grew up surrounded by all of these things and I suppose it was natural that I would have mm. some interest in it. Um, on the other hand, I was the generation that had to work for a living. So I managed to turn a, a hobby into a business and uh, after my early departure from university, which was somewhat unusual because it was the only fee-paying university in England and I still managed to get kicked out of it. <laughs> Is there a story there or one uh, you can share? It, it was just for lack of attendance. I think I was too okay. busy too busy reading car magazines. Uh, it was in Buckingham, so I used to spend the whole time driving backwards and forwards between Buckingham and London in my little Fiat 500 that took, oh, took about a day <laughs> and um, not enough time in lecture halls. So when that came to an end, I thought, well, what should I do? My father was pushing me to get a job. You should, you should go into banking, maybe you should go into property. Funny enough, he never mentioned the Navy because <laughs> the wages weren't very good. Um, and I thought, oh, this all sound really boring. Um, I'd love to work in cars. And by that stage, I knew a reasonable amount of cars, just by, about, about cars by osmosis, listening to my, my father's stories of, of, of yesteryear. But also uh, reading, and you're too young to remember this, something mm. called Exchange and Mart, which was a really cheap newspaper where you could find everything for sale, including cars. A kind of eBay paper Yeah, eBay version. before the internet. Yeah. And uh, my dad had given me a, a small amount of money to buy my first car, thinking that I was going to go and acquire a Renault 5 or something sensible. But by reading Exchange and Mart, which came out once a week, um, I discovered that you could actually buy an old Aston Martin for the same price. <laughs> And I thought, this is fantastic. So I, I learned a lot about all the things you could buy for, I think it was about £3,000. And one of which was a, a, an early 70s Aston, which would have been in pretty ropey condition. Right. But, you know, when Did you, you said, buy it? Uh, no, there's another story. <laughs> there's another story there. Um, you, you, you thought, okay, I can afford this car, but you need to get insurance. So you call up the uh, insurance companies long, long before the internet, and you put on your deepest, most grown-up <laughs> voice and say to them, so, um, yes, I'm thinking of buying this Aston Martin, and um, what would it cost to insure? And they, first of all, they say to you, uh, so uh, how old are you, sir? And you say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm 17. Ah, <laughs> oh, right. And how long have you had a license for, sir? Well, um, I don't actually have a license yet. It's a provisional license. Um, just one moment, sir. And that one moment turned into about 10 or 15 minutes. And then eventually they came back on the line and they said, well, actually, sir, the good news is we can insure this car for you. Um, it will cost a little bit, though. The cost of insuring your £5,000 Aston Martin for your first year will be £15,000. So uh, the Aston Martin never happened. No. Uh, a friend of mine came along at the same time and said, oh, you don't want to buy an Aston Martin. I've got a much better idea for you. Um, a friend of mine is uh, creating a nightclub in Wimbledon. Wimbledon, where's that? Oh, it's with the yeah. oh tennis. Yeah, yeah, okay, it's going to be very, very popular. Trouble is, it's only popular once a year. Um, but this entrepreneur who was starting this nightclub and had run out of money before the opening happened to have a Jaguar XJS, which I thought was very, very cool. Twelve cylinders, long bonnet, purred along the road. 
And he would lend it to me as security for this loan. So I thought, great, fantastic. Got the Jaguar, got the gold membership card to the nightclub. <laughs> How old were you? 17 at I this was, point? By this stage, I think I was 19. You actually. must have been the coolest 19-year-old in southwest London. Well, I would have been if I hadn't meant, learnt the meaning of higher purchase, quickly followed by repossession. Okay. Um, when a burly man came knocking at the door of my flat on the King's Road to say, I've come to collect the Jaguar. I said, what do you mean, the, collect the Jaguar? So yeah, yeah, I've got to come to collect it. I, I've, it's, it's mine for the time being. Uh, no, sir, I'm afraid the owner of the car has not kept up his repayments and oh, no. I've come to take it away. So I was left with no Jaguar and the nightclub folded short, shortly afterwards. So you lost your money as well? I lost my money as well and I lost my XJS. And it took, okay. me, it took me another, I think, 20 years to finally acquire the Aston Martin that I wanted. Never, okay. did, never did get the XJS. <laughs> That's a shame. But your first job was in um, an auction house, wasn't it? A car auction house? Uh, I, had a, I had various odd jobs yeah. when I was a teenager, including working in Harrods and a, and a pasta shop on the King's Road, because I, I think I'm convinced myself it's because I spoke Italian and I was good at it, but I don't think so. <laughs> um, but my first real job, yes, was uh, was at a place called Coy's, which was in a beautiful muse off of uh, Queensgate in, in Kensington. And, um, you know, I went, I, my, I grew up in Italy, I should, I should add. My, my, my parents left England in the 70s, in, in the mid-70s. Um, our family home before that was a farm in Dorset. And uh, in the mid-70s, got very expensive to stay in the UK. My father said, right, that's it. I'm selling everything and we're leaving. So we went to live at our holiday home in Tuscany, which was a, a remote farmyard surrounded by vineyards and olive groves, which sounds idyllic, but is an absolute nightmare when you're a teenager and the nearest house is a kilometer away and the nearest town is 10 kilometers away and you only have a bicycle. Um, so we went there and I got shipped off to boarding school in Switzerland along with my brother. And um, after all of that was over, did my brief stint at uni, and um, and then after after being ejected for that from that, came back to Italy, to sort of with my tail between my legs and to earn some money cutting down trees and painting walls and just trying to trying to pass the time whilst I found a job. Anyway, I had to created a CV which was a fairly short CV as you could imagine, sent it off to all the classic car dealers around the world and got absolutely nowhere, okay. and did that for about a year, a year and a half until finally. A cousin of mine in London who was working in the city, um, on the off chance, happened to be walking past this vintage car showroom, walked in and said, hey, I've got a cousin who's crazy on cars. You wouldn't have a vacancy by any chance, would you? And they said, well, funnily enough, yes. One became available yesterday. So he called me up and he said, Simon, you've got to get over here to London. There's a vacancy that's come up at this place called Coys. And I said, great, it's a fantastic company. I wrote to them a year ago, never heard back. I'll, I'll come over. Um, so I sort of made up my CV on my mother's typewriter, went down to the local post office in Siena to fax it over, which was a very, very unheard of thing. And I got a call from them saying, okay, we'd like, to, we'd like you to come in and see us. So hopped on a, I say hopped on a plane, I suspect probably drove two hours to get there, having borrowed the money for the ticket off my parents, flew to London, borrow, I, remember, I remember I was wearing my father's Royal Yacht Squadron blazer to try and look smart. <laughs> And um, without, the, without the stripes on the sleeves, luckily. And um, they said, okay, tell us about yourself and um, let's walk around the showroom and see which of the cars you can identify. So did that. They said, okay, come back later on this afternoon. Um, came back a few hours later and they said, right, the pub's opposite, we'll finish the interview in there. Anyway, long and short of it, they said, right, we're gonna give you a three month trial period and um, see, see if you're any good. So 
flew back to Italy, loaded all of my worldly possessions into my little Alfa Romeo Spider that by then I owned, wow. which was my first sort of real car, and uh, drove all the way from Tuscany to England, sort of two, a two-day drive, slept on the sofa of my friend, my school friend, William Stanhope, who lived in Stanhope Gardens, which was conveniently just around the corner from, from Coy's, and um, presented myself at work on my first day, and I think managed to not disgrace myself too much. And I remember, I remember the, the cars in the showroom seemed like something from another world, a Ferrari 500 Superfast, a Ferrari 275 GTB, you know, all nose and low cabin, just what you imagine an Italian sports car to look like. Um, a black Jaguar XK120 I was, I was asked to drive on the first day. I could not believe this. It was my 21st birthday. And uh, here I was being given the keys to a car, and I was actually being paid to drive it. Now, I was only being paid to drive it into storage in Pimlico, but nobody ever took a longer route from Kensington <laughs> to Pimlico than I did on that day in that car, which I actually couldn't fit into, but that's, a, that's another story. You know, you don't want to be tall and try to drive old cars because you soon discover that people used to be shorter yeah, way back when. But anyway, I absolutely loved the job. I would come in at weekends to clean the cars just to get to know them better. I... Um, I, I was entrusted with writing catalogue descriptions for, for the auction catalogues. And I remember crafting one for this Ferrari 500 Superfast using various books and so on, Ferrari books. And I remember the owner of the car coming in and saying to my boss, I don't know who's written the text on that car, but it's clearly clear they've never ever seen one in their <laughs> life before. So that went back to the drawing board. Okay. But, but after three months, they did say to me, well, you're a bit arrogant, but we're going to give you a chance and, and keep you on. So, um, so I, I, I stayed and I remember my first auction, I had no idea what to do. Um, I, should, I should add, by the way, that they said, well, we've got two vacancies actually. One, you can work for the chairman who has his own car collection and his own businesses, or you can work as an assistant in the auction department. And I thought, I have no idea what the difference is, but auctions sound quite fun. Let's go, let's tick that box. So um, my office, which was of course shared with, with uh, a secretary and my boss, was actually in a former inspection pit in the bottom of, of Coy's showroom which was fine if you were the secretary who was about five foot tall, but if you're six foot four, you soon learnt to walk everywhere in a, in a constant stoop. Otherwise, you were going to bash your head against one of the girders that supported the showroom floor above. But there was a, there was a great ambiance. It was a wonderful place to, to learn your craft. And if I hadn't survived very long at university, and I certainly didn't excel at school, that was really a place to, to learn business. And yeah. I think I learned more there than anywhere else. I had, a, I had a, great, uh, a great boss, a great immediate boss, who kept his cocker spaniel in the, in the office, whose name was Chaos, which was fairly appropriate. This lovely, delightful secretary who, who sort of looked after us like a mother, made us tea, stopped us from bashing our heads, and just kept us in, in line. And then, you know, all the great car collectors of the world would come into the showroom above. I remember one day Ralph Lauren walking in and uh, various actors and, and Christ, what was his name? Christopher Casanova. I think he was in Dynast Dynasty. Mm. It, it was just a great time to yeah. be in the business. The market was on fire. Enzo Ferrari had just died, and everybody had uh, decided that Ferraris were going to be the next big investment. Uh, you'd had um, Black Wednesday in October, I think, 87 from memory, and the stock, the stock market collapsed, and everybody was looking for alternative investments. And classic cars were the new alternative investment. 
this was a great time to be working in the business as, as, a, as a young guy. The fact that there was a pub opposite was brilliant. What was that pub? Is it still there? It's still there. It's called the Queen's Arms. A lot of university yeah. students uh, would, would drink there and, and sit outside in the summer. And it always provided entertainment for, for them and for us when a transporter would arrive outside and disgorge whatever wonderful or improbable car coys had got mm. to sell that week. I remember, one, I remember once... Um, I'd been negotiating with the guy in New Zealand who had this ex-film, ex-TV series car. My boss told me, do not take that car for auction. And he went off on a business trip for two weeks, so I did take it for auction. And um, the transporter, this car was shipped over from New Zealand, and the transporter pulled up in, in, you know, on Queensgate Terrace outside and on a, on a summer's evening, in, in, it must have been July, and uh, the, the back of the transporter goes down and the ramp, the ramp, the ramps, ramps come out, and then the, the the driver with the remote control slowly winches out the car, and you know initially most of the the, the drinkers didn't pay any attention until they see these two huge black fins emerging wow. from the rear of the transporter, um, and then you see something that looks like a parachute strapped to the back, what looked like rocket launchers on the back, and finally a a mock-up atomic generator and it is of course the 1960s <laughs> Batmobile from the TV series and what do you do if you've got the Batmobile in Kensington of course you're going to drive it so I said to my secretary right by this stage I actually had a secretary I said to her right jump in let's go for a drive in this thing let's see if we can, one of the mechanics can get it running and they did they had to find the fuel tank and the fuel tank consisted of a small paint pot behind the driver's seat, not even secured to the floor, just a paint pot with a tube that went into it. You think, really, that's the fuel tank? But of course, the Batmobile only ever had to run for 10 seconds yeah, to drive yeah. past the camera, heading out of the Batcave towards Gotham City, and it didn't need a full <laughs> fuel tank. So anyway, we put, we put sort of a pint of fuel into this thing and fired it up, and it made the most almighty V8 racket, like a, like a sort of vintage speedboat. And what do you do? You, you drive it through the back streets, because of course it doesn't have any license plates, uh, to see your mates in the other nearby mews, just off Cromwell Road, um, in the vintage car business, and, and show them something that they have definitely <laughs> never had for sale before. But you do. So we'd got down to the mews, and it, there was much guffawing and merriment about the, the Batmobile, and um, drove it back, drove it back to the to the to, to the showroom. And of course, all the, all the students wanted to have, be photographed with it, of course, and, and, and so on. And my boss emerges from the showroom and says, oh, I've got to have a go in that. Uh, so he jumps, jumps into it. He doesn't roar off down the back streets. He roars off straight down Queensgate and then makes a left onto Knightsbridge at Friday evening Russia. <laughs> and, of course, you can imagine the next bit. There are the, there's this, this police car parked, sort of minding their own business, probably having a cup of tea or something, parked on Queensgate. Um, and this... 20-something foot long Batmobile roars past and it's got a siren above, of course, you know, it's got yeah. a, the bat siren above the, uh, above the cockpit and all these sort of ridiculous crime-fighting gadgets attached to it. And uh, so, of course, you know, they, newspapers get chucked into the, into the, ba into the back, fire, up, fire the thing up and turn on the real sirens and give chase to the Batmobile. They caught up with him outside of Harrods, pulled him over on the pavement outside and uh, whereupon, of course, you can imagine a crowd of, of tourists descend on this. And um, I was called and asked to come down and, and, and help. And I will never forget the sight of my boss and secretary standing by the side of the road as two policemen in short sleeve white shirts with their, you know, their, their yeah, peak caps and the checkerboard band on them 
get into the Batmobile where Robin and Batman would normally be sitting and drive off with a police escort down the road to the police station where the car was impounded. I thought this is so wrong and I'm in so much trouble. And I remember my boss then having, I remember, I remember overhearing a conversation between him and I think the, the police commissioner, whoever it was, saying, but you don't understand. It's been promised to a children's charity next weekend. The children, what are we going to tell them? There's going to be no Was that true? Deal. We'll I'm hope actually, it is. I'm not it actually is. sure if it was true or not. It, it, it was. There may have been a grain of truth, but whatever whatever the truth was, <laughs> the Batmobile came back okay, the following good. week. And thank God I did not have to call the owner in New Zealand and tell him that the Batmobile was not going to auction <laughs> because it was currently in the custody of the Metropolitan Police. Wow. <laughs> and it did sell. It was sold. But that's a whole other story. It was sold to a guy who um, bought 10 cars and paid a million pounds in cash. But that's, wow. that's a whole other story. So after your auction career, you decided to kind of strike out on your own. And you mentioned Ralph Lauren there. And Mr. Lauren, as, as people called him, should, he was one of your first uh, clients, was he not? Ralph Lauren was, a, was an early client. Um, we're lucky. We've got some, I have to say, we've got some great, really great clients. And many of them become friends. People like Mark Newson, a great designer, yeah, but also a great, a great connoisseur of automotive design who, who judges in a variety of... Um, Car Concours d'Elegance, such as the Cartier Concours um, at Goodwood. Um, we've got a really, a really diverse mm. group of people. I, I, I did 18 years in auctions, eight years at, at Coys, and I would add that the, what was really useful there was speaking languages. Um, my very first auction, there were some Italians there who had arrived f to, to buy something, and, and they didn't speak a word of English, and the staff at Coys, including the management, didn't speak a word of anything else. Some would argue they didn't even speak much English. But I befriended him, and he became my first ever client and became a big big collector, big client of Coys, and the same with Swiss and, and, and mm. French-speaking um, speaking clients. So that was, was really, I mean, it's great to have a passion for the subject, but it, it, languages, I found, were, were very, very useful. Uh, after, after eight years of Coys, I was approached by... Uh, Brooks, as it was then, which was a rival firm down in the rather less salubrious surroundings of Clapham. Mm. And they said, look, we know you've got a lot of European clients. We'd like to start a European business. Would you be interested in running it? And I said, yeah, I would actually. Where do you plan on basing it? And they said, uh, Clapham. I said, well, that sounds very international to me. So after a bit of negotiation, we agreed upon Geneva, which I okay. thought a much better ring wow. to it. And uh, I moved to Geneva uh, in in '96 to start and uh, and run Brooks Europe, which after two or three years became Bonhams Europe when Little Brooks bought much bigger Bonhams, and then grew the business by adding the UK side of Philips, which um, had been bought by LVMH, but they didn't really they weren't really that interested yeah. in, in the auction business. And then they also acquired a business called Butterfields in San Francisco, which was an old Gold Rush era auction house which eBay had bought and again decided that live auctions weren't ready for them. So the tiny little company that I joined when we were 15 strong, within three or four years had become 800 people. Right. And did you rise up accordingly? Were you I, kind of I did rise up accordingly, but I didn't feel as if it was really me. Um, I wouldn't describe myself as a, an enthusiast of management and administration. I enjoy business. I enjoy the contact with the clients. Mm. I, I love the product. Of course. I happen to be, I, I consider myself to be a car person, a car guy, if you like. And uh, I knew that the time had come to leave when I was, I remember standing at the top of the steps of, a, of an art gallery in Athens 
greeting the local great and the good to an art exhibition that, mm-hmm. we, were, that we were hosting. And I thought to myself, I don't know anything about this subject, really. I can't speak with passion about, about Greek art, or indeed any art for that matter. So um, Robert Brooks, the chairman of the company who had hired me initially, knew that I'd, I'd wanted to leave for some time. And so I did a sweetheart deal with him to take my entire team in Geneva with me and to take over the offices. And by that stage, I decided this was in, um, in 2005, 2000, beginning of 2006. I had decided that I wanted to create a different business, not to hold auctions any longer. I felt that was a crowded market mm-hmm. and that the quality of items being offered for sale was, was suffering. And to create something of a consultancy where new and experienced collectors could get impartial advice both on collecting, but also on financing their collections and on insuring the collection, uh, restoring the cars, anything really to do with collecting classic cars at a a high level. Now, that was the plan. I still remember within the first week of business, one client calling up wanting to sell something very expensive, a new client, and another client coincidentally calling up a day later saying that he wanted to buy one of those. Okay, that's quite happy. Basically, the business changed very early on into a brokerage business. Mm -hmm. And that is what it has been ever since, although it has grown since then. It's now 13 years old. It's grown to encompass uh, valuations. We publish an index, a market index. I thought it was important to try and bring some transparency to the market, particularly in, in, in in a bull market, which our market experienced between... 2008, I would say, the quantitative easing era, and 2014, when once again everybody was looking for an alternative investment. The stock market was a bit of a roller coaster. Property, a lot of people felt, was overvalued. Classic cars offered, uh, uh, if you'll excuse the pun, a good investment vehicle, along with modern art, wine, watches, etc. Et but I felt that people were assuming that this was just a one-way market, and people only ever looked at the good results and quoted the record mm. prices. They never looked at the, the, the flip side of that. So we decided to, to with all the information that we'd gathered, gathered over a number of years, we decided to publish, to, to create and publish, make available to the public a, an, an index that would chart the market, that would enable you to see what was, what was going up, what was going down, but also to look at trends in terms of groupings of cars, one make versus another, Ferrari versus Aston Martin, for example, or pre-war versus post-war, and, and, and so on. And that has actually been very successful. I would not describe it as a huge money spinner because we don't aim to, to, to make this data available to everybody. It's a relatively select group. But in terms of credibility, it's very good for us. Yeah, of course. And for our own business, when somebody asks us for advice on buying or selling something, it's great to have that information yeah. at our fingertips, which nobody else has. And, any, and if anybody else has any bit of it, they certainly don't publish it. Fine. And you talk about the good results. What are the horror results we don't often see? What are the, the real horror stories? The horror results you don't see are, for example, the, the, the large number of cars that don't sell at auction, the majority of cars at auction that are selling for less than the estimates. That's information that the auction house will never publish. Uh, auction houses... I suppose I'm, this is a bit like sort of poacher-turned-gamekeeper, but auction houses always publish, and not, not just car auction houses, their estimates without commission. Okay. And then when they publish the results, they publish them with commission, right. which flatters the, flatters the results because it makes it look as if you've got more than the estimate. But bearing in mind that auction houses will often charge 20% commission to buyers, 
It's a big difference. Yeah, of course. You'll see some cars that have declined in value. I mean, people forget that does happen. Not everything goes up. Um, you know, even in a, even in a, uh, a relatively uh, bullish market, there are still some cars that, that, that are going down. Uh, if I can give an example, certain pre-war cars. And there's a demographic change happening there. I think one of the big issues at the moment in the marketplace is the new generation. What are they going to collect? Yeah, are cars going to be as collectible in the future now that we've got Uber, we've got self, we will have self-driving cars, we have alternative power sources, hydrogen, electric, and so on. You've got legislation, which is forcing some polluting cars off of the road, certainly in, in city centers in certain countries. But more than anything else, you've got just, I would say, a changing of tastes amongst the younger generation. Yeah. And of course, as you know, a lot of young people don't even feel the need to get their driving license anymore. Or to own things, ownership is yeah, less important. Yeah, absolutely. I think there was an article in the FT not long ago that said, suggested, you know, cars have become a service mm. rather than an asset now. Yeah. Friends of mine who work in the luxury industry, the, the, the Schertz family who run the famous Palace Hotel in Gestad, Andrea, the, the, the heir to that family and the, and the manager of that hotel, attends a lot of luxury conferences. What is luxury? And he tells me that luxury is increasingly experience yeah, rather than purchase. And I think that, that translates to, to, to cars as well. So there is a change, and I think you'd be naive not to certainly follow, but, but also try to predict those, those changes. Yeah. And it's an interesting thing, isn't it, car investment, if you do invest in cars, that the value is so connected to taste and, and personal opinion. What have been the kind of taste changes over even the last 10 years? What's fallen out of favor and what's now hot stuff? Pre-war cars are, in other words, built before 1939. We're not talking the Vietnam or, or the okay. Gulf War. We're right. talking the Second World War. Pre-war cars are becoming more of a niche. Right. And so what are some of those, what are, what are some of the kind of flagship pre-war cars that we Flagship pre-war cars, flagship pre-war cars would be, for example, first and foremost, we've talked about Ralph Lauren, one of his, one of the jewels in his collection mm. is the Bugatti Atlantique, which is the ultimate pre-war supercar, if you like. Yeah. It's a car of which four were built, two and a half survive. One is one was lost in 1940, and the other one was cut in half by a train on a level crossing in 1955. <laughs> um, that would be about as good as it gets in yeah. terms of pre-war cars, and it also probably bridges the gap between automotive and art. It's a very sculptural car. It's one of the cars. In fact, it was the star exhibit when he displayed his collection at the at an offshoot of the Louvre a few years ago in Paris. Uh, so Bugatti is one of the, the great brands. But does that has that value changed with taste, or is that kind of no? I would say that transcends. Things? Yeah, that transcends taste because that is that is great. That is an old master in the car mm. world. That is something which has a broad appeal. Bugatti, the brand, people still recognize it. Of course. The aesthetics of that car. If that car drove down the street outside, traffic and, and pedestrians would still stop for yeah. that car. It looks spectacular. If Captain Nemo drove a car, that is what he would, he would drive. It's, it's black. It's low. It has a riveted spine across the top. It looks like a creature from the deep. Wow. It's sinister picture, but yeah. beautiful at the same time. <laughs> Uh, another brand that people do not associate with greatness these days because for many years they, they produce relatively affordable cars is Alfa Romeo. But before the war, long before anybody had heard of Ferrari, the Alfa Romeo racing team was run by Mr. Ferrari when he was just a team manager. Alphas of the 1930s were far more exclusive than Ferrari today. 
They were supercharged. They had eight cylinders, which was considered to be very exotic. It makes a very distinctive basso profundo sound, um, a very macho sound. It's a racing car for the road. But that was a car that would do 120 miles an hour when most family saloons, if you could afford a car, which most people couldn't, would just about splutter to 60 miles an hour. Oh, so this wow. was something really otherworldly. Um, but So Alfa Romeo and, and Bugatti in the 1930s were about as good as it gets. Then you have the obvious luxury cars, which are less fashionable now because we live in a more informal world, Rolls-Royce. Bentley is a, good, uh, is a good compromise because we think of Bentley as a luxury car today, but you know, my uncle raced Bentleys at Le Mans. They were sports cars in the mm. 1920s. Um, described by Mr. Bugatti, who was the great rival, as the fastest lorries in the world. But nonetheless, Bentley's, Bentley's heyday what, was... They, because they weren't pretty like his car? Uh, they were rugged. They, no. weren't, they weren't sculptural like a, like a Bugatti. Mr. Bentley was a railway engineer, and you can see that in, in his design. There was nothing delicate about them. They, no. were, they were strong cars for strong men. They were ma macho cars, if you like. Um, when you look at a, a 1920s Bentley, it's got the aerodynamics of a London bus, it sounds like a Lancaster bomber. More often than not, it has a Union Jack painted on the door, just to, just to let you know if you're in any doubt where the driver comes from. It's a proper man's car. Yeah. And the steering, you know, long before the days of power steering, uh, you, know, you, need, you need to be a proper sportsman to, to hustle a car like that around, uh, around a racing track or, 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 even, or even Mayfair for that matter. Um, so those are the sort of flagship yeah, the cars of that era. It's interesting that the brands that are the most collectible now are those that have survived because it enables a modern collector, an aspiring collector, to understand where that brand fits in the motoring hierarchy. If you tell somebody, oh, I've got a vintage Ferrari or a vintage Bentley or a vintage Lamborghini, they have a pretty good idea of, of whether it's a prestigious name or yeah, not. Of course. If you tell them you've got a Hispano Suiza, yeah. now to a car person, that means a lot. That marks you out as a person of taste and a person of means, as it did when they were new. But if you ask the man, tell the man on the street that I've got a Hispano Suiza, he has no idea whether you're talking about a lawnmower or a watch. And that limits the market for the car. So bragging rights is almost quite important. The status symbol of just saying to your friends down the pub, I've got a vintage Ferrari. There are human parallels uh, with the automotive world. Uh, the, the name counts for a lot, the brand name on the bonnet, but then the aesthetics. You know, when you see somebody attractive in a bar, what do you notice? You notice the way they look. Um, you're not engaged by their sparkling conversation unless you're, and, until you've actually struck it up, and the same is true with a car. First thing you notice is, mm. is it good looking? So that's a, that's a big selling point. The second thing, if I can use the, the, um, the, the, the comparison with the conversation, yeah is, okay, what's beneath the surface? And in the case of a car, you open up the bonnet, and if there's this great-looking car with a long bonnet, not to use too rude a parallel, but you want, you want there to be something there. Uh, what do they say in America? You don't want to be all, what is it, all hat and no cattle. Okay, um, and I so not heard of that. must be a Texan. Right. Um, you don't want to find that you open the bonnet, this massive long bonnet, and then underneath there's an engine the size of a sewing machine. Okay. You want something with lots of cylinders and carburetors and exhaust pipes right. that makes noise and that implies power. And when you've got all of those ingredients, a great brand name, great aesthetics, and a great and exotic mechanical specification, much like a tourbillon watch, for example, mm -hmm. even if you don't know how it works, you want to be able to tell your friends course, about it. Yeah, yeah. Then you've ticked most of the boxes. 
to tick every box, the ultimate would be to add on top of that either a famous owner, let's say it's Steve McQueen's Ferrari, mm. and that makes a huge difference, or great racing pedigree. It won Le Mans, it won the Mille Miglia, it won such and such a Grand Prix, yeah. the Monaco Grand Prix, for example, and ideally driven by somebody famous, whether it's a Schumacher or a yeah, Fangio yeah. or whoever it might be. Is there anything that ticks all five? Famous owner, won a race? Uh, yeah, there are some cars like that, and it's interesting. When, you can, when you've got all of those boxes ticked, if you were to use a sort of mathematical comparison, it does not have the, the effect of just adding yeah. those different things together. It has the effect of multiplying them together because it's so rare to find them wow. all together in one car. Are there, have you ever owned one that ticks all the boxes? Uh, or? I, you know what? I wish I, I, wish I had. I've, I've owned some, some things that I love over the years, and, and most of them I still do because I tend to buy them and keep them for a long time because I, I love them. But the absolute ultimate, uh, sadly, I don't think I'll ever be able to afford um, mm. something like a, a Ferrari GTO that was raced by a, a great driver. Some of those aforementioned uh, Bugattis. One of the one of my hero cars would be Sterling Moss's yeah, Mille Miglia winning Mercedes from 1955, and that combines a great brand name, Mercedes. It's interesting that Mercedes managed to build trucks and taxis and yet still have the prestige to build some of the greatest sports cars in the world. That's quite an achievement. Uh, it's got rarity. They made 10 of them. Uh, sorry, 11 of them. 10 survive. One was destroyed in a big crash. Um, aesthetics. It's definitely got aesthetic appeal. It's this, they're known as the silver arrows. It's a sort yeah. of bullet-shaped uh, bullet shaped project projectile. Fantastic mechanical specifications. Straight eight, straight through exhaust. Uh, a gear lever that looks like Excalibur, uh, almost complete with the sort of celestial markings around the, 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 the gear shift pattern. That's arguably the most valuable car in the world. Yeah. Uh, and it really does tick every single box. And yeah, that car won the Mille Miglia in a time that was never beaten. In 19, Think back in 1955. Now, none of us were born, but a lot of the roads that that race was run on weren't even tarmac. They were, they were still gravel or, or dirt. And Sterling Moss, with a tiny little gnome of a man who was a motoring journalist called Dennis Jenkinson, he was an ex-motorcycle racer, so he was, quite, he was a compact little guy. He looked like a sort of dwarf with a beard and little, little John Lennon glasses. And uh, you could, on that race, you could either race solo, so your car weighed less, but you had nobody, no pace notes, or you could take a co-driver. And Sterling Moss just decided to take a co-driver and took, took Dennis Jenkinson, who was this as I say, motoring journalist. And Jenkinson, on their practice runs, devised this pace notes system whereby he had something like a sort of a loo roll holder on the dashboard in front of him with basically a roll of pace notes for a thousand miles of, of fast oh, driving. Wow. So he just so he just he wow. just you know rolled it off like like, like I say it's an infinite loo paper roll, <laughs> and um, and told Moss fast, um, slow, hard left, hard right. And you know, if there was if there was a, a a very severe bump in the road, or they were going flat out, he would just he had a, he had a sort of a code system that he would bash his hand on Moss's uh, crash helmet to tell him to, to signal to signal these um, these different uh, blind turns ahead, and that worked really really well. Um, on one turn, it didn't run work that well, and they went off the road and hit some hay bales. But the spectators managed to pull them out. The front of the car was a bit bashed up, but they they, they kept on going. And then at one stage, it started raining, and all of Jenks's notes started turning into mush because the ink ran. But despite that, he overcame that problem, and they took the lead. Uh, at another stage, Jenkinson got car sick, mm. 
and put his head over the side of the car to be sick. And of course, in the Airstream, that got rid of his glasses. Mm. So, so the poor guys, by the end of this, they were absolutely exhausted. But, and just, you can imagine, this is despite opposition from a very, very strong local Ferrari team who, who had won the event uh, a number of times before. They took the checkered flag after, I think it was 10 hours and five seconds, something like that, for a thousand miles. Their average time, and no motorways, no, no, it's not a track, it's an open road. And it's still, in theory, open to the public as well at this stage. They did it at an average speed of 99.9 miles wow. an hour, a time oh that God. has never, ever been beaten. And if you see the pictures of them at the end of this race, their faces are absolutely black apart from the, where their goggles yeah, yeah, yeah. were. And Sterling Moss had been given some, some pills by his teammate Fangio to help stay awake on this, on this event. And they did such a good job that he then jumped into his company car, a little small Mercedes, and drove that all the way to Stuttgart in Germany to report his exploits to the Mercedes-Benz top brass. Wow, without and sleeping. Think, uh, without sleeping. Okay. And I think what to this pills? day, what is it, 60-something years later, yeah. he still doesn't know what was in those pills, and it's probably best not asked. <laughs> okay, but that right. is probably one of the yeah. most his heroic and historic drives in motor racing folklore. Yeah. And so that's, that's, I'm often asked, what's your favorite car? And, and that's that would the be one. it. Yeah, that would be it. When you talk about cars, it's, it's a very poetic way to speak about cars. And obviously, you're incredibly passionate about them. Some people, when they speak about cars, it can get into that kind of geeky numbers game and it turns people off straight away. Do you think that the way you speak about cars, the way you present them, can add actual value to them? If you're with a buyer and you tell one of these incredible stories, you can add 10 grand by the end of the, your anecdote. If I only add 10 grand, I'm not doing a very good job. Okay, no, fine, but um, you know, 10 grand of expression. Yeah, I, I suppose anybody who's in any sales business, whether you're selling Mondeos or whether you're selling Matisses, mm. you should have some enthusiasm for your subject, yeah. for, for sure. But are there any tricks, I mean, that we could take into our own lives when we're trying to convince people? What are, I don't think... I, it's just that's one of the reasons I left, I left Bonhams. As I say, I didn't feel it. I, couldn't, I did not have a passion for art and all yeah. the other different departments that, that Bonhams encompassed and still encompasses. I like the product. I, I, I like the human interest story. Um, have I had any training either in public speaking or as a salesman? No, I probably should have. I just happen to love my subject. And I'm sure the same is true of anybody in, in a similar position, whatever they're selling, whether they're selling the pottery that they make, whether they're, whether they're a, a, a passionate chef. Mm -hmm. I think it's, you know, there's that, that old saying that we've all heard before, if you, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. And I've always said to others, um, particularly those that want to work in a similar business, um, don't follow the money, follow what you, what you love. Because yeah. if, you, if you love it, you'll work hard at it. If you work hard at it, you'll be good at it. If you're good at it, you'll make some money out of it some, somehow. Yeah. Um, that's not to say that you don't try to look ahead and, and predict trends and, and work more cleverly. But to me, um, being passionate about what you do is... is the number one. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a huge reward. And what I do in, in my daily business, which I suppose is basically a very, a very glamorous form of secondhand car dealing, um, is to try to handle the things that I enjoy, that I feel passionate about. I think I'd feel a fraud if I was trying to fake that enthusiasm. I think that would show very, very quickly. And to, and to do it as, as, as best yeah. as you can. That doesn't mean that you don't have to have some discipline to the way that you operate. 
I think in, in, in this business, you need three things. You need a knowledge of the product, which surprisingly is probably the easiest to acquire because if you've got the time and the inclination, you will study and, and learn. You need to have the contacts, and that again just comes with time. I remember my first auction, standing there, not knowing what to do with myself, who to speak to. I didn't know anybody. I didn't know whether I was supposed to stand behind the auctioneer, uh, whether I was supposed to stand by the door, sell catalogs, polish cars, just grin and look like a fool. I probably did all of those things because I didn't know anybody. But of course, after two, three, four, five years, you, you, you have your client base, you know people, people know you, and you then know who to call up when you have something to sell. Yeah. And, or, or where to find something when you have a client that wants to buy it. And the third thing really is a knowledge of business. And I think that could be a client applied to, to anybody in any kind of transactional business. If you're an estate agent, if you're selling caravans, if you're selling anything, mm. you just need to, to learn the way the business works, what you can and can't say. You can't overpromise. Uh, you can't make sweeping statements unless you can back them up. Okay. Um, and you just have to have a discipline with the way that you work. Thing, you know, saying somebody said to I, I overheard the other day somebody saying, if it's not in writing, it doesn't exist. For example, and those are the type of basic lessons that I would I would teach to anybody coming yeah. into the business. And we have a lot of interns who who come and uh, work for us in 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 our business, and I would try and impart those same very basic lessons to them. Yeah, and when you were young and trying to get a job you wrote letters to all your favorite companies do you get lots of inquiries i imagine there's a huge amount of young men and women who want to work for you yeah you, uh, we get a lot of inquiries like that and i always and try, try to, to yeah i always try to reply personally um or make sure at least that one of my colleagues does obviously and think to myself yeah if i was in that person's shoes i'd be upset if i didn't get a reply yeah. um, but what do you look for when who impresses you when they come in or when you they know funny enough the last person that we employed was as a result of an Instagram post, oh, wow. believe it or not. How modern. Um, yeah, especially in such an old-fashioned business. In the past, when we have employed staff, the first person that I ever employed myself, who went on to great things, I employed when I was still in Geneva um, via an advert in the local newspaper saying motor car specialist sort. And this guy's girlfriend saw it. He was working behind the bar of a local pub. He was 21 years old, just like me when I started. And she said, oh, hey, you love cars. Um, you know, this is a perfect job for you. So he came along and didn't have much in the way of, well, in fact, very little work experience, maybe mixing cocktails, but that wasn't really what we were looking for. Um, but he just impressed me because he spoke languages, first thing. And ours is a very international business. Um, seemed prepared to work. Had a good education, good manners, good a good way of dealing with some with people just personable if you know what I mean and um, I remember that after six months I thought I probably made the wrong decision this guy cannot sell anything but I was clearly wrong because he stayed working with me for a number of years and um, went on to be one of the superstar dealers in the in the classic wow. car world and, and still is the last person that we employed I I did an, an Instagram post a, a few months ago where I took um, my first car back to where I where I used to live and I did a sort of photo you know dissolve from a picture of me leaving home in that car on the day that I went to get my first job to exactly the same car exactly oh, wow, the same lovely. place exactly 30 years later with a lot more gray hair obviously <laughs> and I just in you know it's a one one minute video and in the commentary at the end of it I just thought 
um, I just said, you know, hey, if there's anything I can impart to you, if you're interested in working in this uh, business is, you know, follow your dreams. And by the way, if you are interested, um, we're looking for somebody to so get in touch. Great. And we had about I don't know, 30, 40 um, people sent in their CVs. And one of them in particular impressed me. He was uh, a student um, in LA at USC who had finished his degree there. And because you get a year-long work visa after, after studying in the States, he'd gone to work for the local Ferrari dealer in Beverly Hills. And then at the end of that, he had gone to work in Italy for a restoration firm that, that, that the owner of that Ferrari dealer also, um, also had acquired. And so he seemed like a good fit. He spoke languages, English, French, Italian, which is exactly what we're looking for. Exactly Well-educated, like yeah. um, well-presented, loved cars, had a little bit of experience, and he's turning out to be brilliant. In fact, as I speak today, he is on a rally from England to Scotland in my pre-war Bentley, having never, never, even, never sat in a pre-war car, let alone mm. driven one. But he's with a colleague of mine from the office, and they're driving, I believe, at the moment through through pouring rain, but having a fantastic time doing it. <laughs> okay, it sounds good. So another thing I want to talk about was your kind of marketing strategy, because if you go on the Kidston website, and I advise everyone to do it, you have these kind of incredible brand videos, which go beyond any kind of car videos, and have they have plot and humor and some, some quite serious production values. Um, but I wonder why you do it. It must be such a lot of effort. And it's kind of, people like looking at cars, they'll, they'll buy cars. Do you need all the, the fun around it? Uh, what do they say? That uh, luxury starts where necessity stops. Um, you know, our business is competitive. There are other people doing what we do. Um, and we try, where possible, to stay ahead of the game. Why do we do those videos? And a lot of people ask us that. Um, I think it's a mixture of ego, if I'm honest. Um, you, you do star in a couple of them. I star in a couple of them, yeah. You can see I can't act. Um, <laughs> but I've had a lot of fun doing it. It's, there's a bit of ego in there. There's a lot of nostalgia because, as, you've, as, you've, as you may have seen, some of the videos are inspired by the sort of TV yeah, yeah. series that I, I grew up with, like the, you know, the Persuaders or the Avengers and all these sort of 60s and 70s things. What, what, we're going to do one on Miami Vice, by the way. That's, 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 <laughs> that's, a, that's a must. And you can guess the soundtrack. <laughs> And I guess to just share our enthusiasm with people, I, I, I like people to not just treat cars as commodities. I mean, yeah. let's face it, they're built to be driven, they're built to be enjoyed, they're not built to be polished and stored forever. Uh, and we want to encourage people to get into their cars, to get out, to drive them, to share them, for other people to see them and to hear them. Yeah. And I hope that with the videos we do that. Um, they're very varied. They often have quite a strong Italian flavor, as, as yes, you would have that's noticed. True. That's probably from my, both my Italian upbringing and the fact that several of my colleagues in the office are Italian. And also that Italy is one of the places that you can still drive these cars as God intended, fast, noisily, and people will not um, tut, tut at you for it. They'll yeah. actually applaud you. I've tried doing that in Switzerland, and you get a rather diff different reaction. <laughs> but it's, I suppose, just to share the passion. Yeah, and I course. hope that by doing that, it's a good advert for our business. It shows that we're not just about buying and selling things. And it just brings a love of old cars to a broader audience. Yeah. And we have a lot of fun doing it. There's quite a good moment where you use your signet ring to burn a hole through a rope that's Yeah, I have to say that was not my idea. That was the, <laughs> that was, that was the Italian cameraman who said, oh, yes, of course, you know, you English, you have these funny signet rings. <laughs> Surely it must have some secret function. So, of course, you know, it cuts through, uh, cuts through a rope. <laughs> there we go. So you speak about some of those cars there that you've, you've known and loved and nostalgia behind them. 
I've got to ask you, how many cars do you think you've owned in your whole life? Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't, um, I don't buy and sell a lot of cars myself. I mean, when I buy something, it's because I love it, yeah. and I can hope, I hope that I can just about afford it. And it's never with an, uh, an intention of, of buying it to sell it. Of course, you know, my Lamborghini Miura I've had for I think 22 years now. My old Porsche Carrera RS from '73, my dad bought new, so that's been in the family for coming up. It'll be 50 years in in, in four years' time. So I haven't, I haven't actually owned a huge amount of cars. I mm. probably have something, depends if my wife's listening or not, but something like 15, 16 okay. odd cars, something like that. But most of them, as I say, I've had for a long time. Yeah. Do you resent people who buy cars and then lock them up and never ever drive them? Uh, resent? No. I'm probably a bit jealous. Um, <laughs> but a bit, what's the point? A, yeah, I've always, I've always said that you know, people who... what I. What I don't, I wouldn't say resent, but what I think is a bit sad are people who buy cars and then agonize about using them, primarily because of the mileage, and treat them purely as an investment. Mm. The person who buys a Ferrari F40 or a Bugatti Veyron, whatever it might be, and then never drives it, Mm. and who at a dinner party will tell his neighbor, oh, you've got an F40, really? How many miles has yours got? 10,000? Oh, mine's only got 1,000. It's a bit sad, isn't it? Yeah. It's a bit like being married to the most beautiful woman in the world and then never sleeping with her because you want to preserve her value for the next husband. I mean, that's a bit lame, really. So so I'm not a big believer in people who buy cars just as an investment. I think that's... Yeah, there's a time and a place for that, fine. And people have tried to start investment funds. I have to say, nobody with any success. Didn't you try and start a couple or you thought about it? No, I thought about it. Absolutely never, never, never started one. Why not? Um, Why wouldn't it work? Probably for that reason. Um, well, I think, first of all, there's an inherent conflict of interest. If you are really successful at selling or buying and selling cars, why would you buy cars and put the best deals into the fund when your clients would expect you to offer the best deals to them? Yeah. Um, who decides where a, a good buy goes, or indeed a good sale? Do you sell, if you've got a, somebody who wants to buy something, do you take something from the fund and sell it to them, or do you take something from, the, from, the, the, uh, from your client base and sell it to them? There, there are lots of conflicts of interest. There are also tax repercussions, because in many countries, the UK included, you can, you can sell cars as a private person without paying capital gains tax. If you do it in a fund structure, that is no Mm. longer the case. You have quite high holding costs. You've got to factor in insurance, maintenance, whether you use the cars or not. A lot of people think, oh, I don't use it, therefore it doesn't need to be serviced, but that's wrong. If you have a supercar, you do need to service it, even if you don't drive it. If nothing else, just so that every year there's a stamp in the book and you can can demonstrate the history of the car at a later stage. So you've got maintenance, you've got, you've got storage, you've got insurance, and people on the whole like to use cars. So if you can buy a car privately and use it occasionally, why would you then want to buy into a fund? Yeah. So I, I looked into this the first time back in 2007 when, when people were talking about it, and I thought, hang on, if they can do it, I could do it much better than that. I'm in, the, I'm, in, I'm in a perfect position and I've got the knowledge to do it. And I looked at it long and hard and decided not to do it for all those reasons. And then again, a few years later, there was a a lot of um, PR about a a fund that was being started in in the UK with some well-known people advising it, but it never got off the ground for the same reasons. And I have not, I've yet to see see any classic car fund that is 
run that is managed by somebody who I think, wow, that's impressive because that person really knows their stuff and they'll know how to find the best cars and, and so yeah. forth. All those people, if they're any good, they're, they're doing what I do. Of course. And in your own collection, in your own life, are there any kind of white elephants that you've been searching for and trying to buy for many, many years? Uh, my life is full of white elephants. Okay. Uh, my collecting career is full of them. What are the, what's the big one, the one that always eludes well, you? Well, I mean, it took me 20 years to find my father's Mercedes Gullwing. The exact same one? The, yeah, I, I had a Gullwing of my own, wow. uh, which is always a car I've, I've, I've loved, maybe because he had one, but although he had it before I was born, it was, he had it, bought it new in 1955, collected it at the factory and so on. And um, that was a car that he was fond of, and he talked about it when he was older. And so when I was able to, I bought a Gullwing of, of my own. And then I finally, it took me 20 years, I finally tracked down my father's actual car. Wow. Now, they made a lot of Gullwings. They made 1,400 of them. And a large number of them were silver, and so was his. So trying to find a silver gullwing yeah. is like looking for a needle in a haystack. But by a pure stroke of luck, and I went as far as America, all over Europe trying to find this car. Having, I, knew, I knew where it had been in the 1980s in Canada, but then the trail went cold. And somebody said to me, oh, I think that car was sold to Switzerland. I thought, really? I called up the Swiss dealer who was supposed to have sold it, and he was very dismissive. No, 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 never heard of it. No, no, not, not me, not me. Anyway. This went on for, for years, and then I said to my then secretary, who had a very good relationship with the lady at the Swiss equivalent of the DVLA, the sort mm -hmm. of motoring, uh, motor car licensing authority, I said, look, could you call up your friend and just say, you know, it's for my boss, he's looking for his father's car, would you mind awfully just telling me informally if it's registered in Switzerland, give them the chassis number. And I remember I was in America um, doing the, the opening of a museum in, in Los Angeles, doing the, the commentary on it, and I got a call from her saying, you're not going to believe this, but your dad's car is in Switzerland. And what's more, she's told me who owns it. And it's, she gave me the name, and it was a, a guy who owned a, a big building company up in Gestad. And I thought, I don't, I don't, bloody believe it. That guy's address is about one kilometer from where I used to go to school. I must have driven past that man's garage a thousand times as a kid and all that, all that time the car was sitting there. So that, I remember that it was 2010 because that was when the Icelandic volcano um, oh, ash yeah. cloud happened and <laughs> I couldn't get back to Europe and I had to get back urgently to, to do the Villa d'Este Concorde, to do the commentary. So BMW, who are the, the sponsors of the event, managed to, to I, I, my secretary got me a, a flight in the middle of the night at short notice um, from LA to Rome, which is not very close to Geneva. And in Rome, a taxi collected me and drove me all the way back a thousand something kilometers to Geneva. And before I went off to the Villa d'Este Concours, I jumped into my car and drove up to Gestard to meet this guy and to see my dad's old Galwing after all those years. Yeah. He was waiting for me. He opened the garage door, and there it was. And I almost, I almost cried. Did and you put an offer in straight away? Did you say, I've got to have this? I said to him, look, I'd love to buy this car. Would you, would you ever sell it? No, 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 in Swiss German, which sounds a lot more definite than it does in English. <laughs> and um, he said, but here, here are the keys. Go for a, go for a drive. So I, I jumped into the car with the, in fact, I should add that the guy who introduced me to this person um, was the, I, I called up the, the owner of the Palace Hotel and I said, look, Andrea, you, you know this guy, right? Would you mind making an introduction so he doesn't think that I'm some complete nutter who's calling up to ask if he's got this car? He said, no, no problem. So the two of us turned up, introduced, I introduced myself and um, he gave me the keys and we went off, for a, went off for a jolly. It was a lovely spring day. 
And I was so emotional. And then he showed me the history file of the car, and it had all my father's letters to previous owners who had written to oh, him at wow. the time about the car. And I, I should add that I still had uh, inherited from my father, who died a good few years before, um, all the paperwork from when he bought the car, including the petrol receipt from when he collected it from the factory, <laughs> drove it around the Nürburgring, the, the business card of the salesman at Mercedes, everything, absolutely everything including the speeding fines from the 1950s, and records of all of the trips that he'd yeah. done and the average speed and so on, going off to this horse. He was liked, liked horses as well, so off to this horse racing meeting and so on and so forth. Always at pretty impressive speeds. Not Sterling Moss, but pretty good. So this guy said to me, no, no, I wouldn't sell the car, I wouldn't sell the car, I wouldn't sell the car. Anyway, we kept in touch. I sent him a hamper at Christmas. I sent him a hamper at his, at his birthday and the whole family because his father, father had given him the car and the father was still alive, so I had to had to court the father, the son, and the brother as well, just for good measure. And eventually, he said to me, I wouldn't sell it for cash, but I would swap it for another silver Swiss-registered gullwing. Okay. And guess what? I happen to have another silver wow. Swiss-registered gullwing. Although mine was perfectly restored and had the best specification, his was to a fairly basic specification, bless my father, and it had been looked after by the local taxi garage, so it was not perfect. And I thought to myself, I must be absolutely bonkers. I'm offering this guy now to do a straight swap between my car Deal and his car. Deal of the century car. for him. Deal of the century for him. But it still took him eight more years to Design. accept. Wow, okay. And finally, last October, he You've agreed. Got it. So I took him my beautiful car, collected his, and promptly broke down in it. Okay. Um, <laughs> but I tell you, it was such an emotional day. Of course. And financially, if my father was alive, he'd look down and say, you stupid boy, what have you done? <laughs> But uh, I'm so, 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 so yeah. pleased to have that car back. That's one that took a very, very long time. And to answer your question, yes, I mean, there, there's, there's always something else that you're looking for because that's what, yeah. that's what keeps you excited, keeps you, keeps you interested. My absolute dream car to own would be a Ferrari 250 LM, which is a mid-60s sports racing car. I've sold them over the years and been lucky enough to drive them as well. And one day, if I win the lottery, that would be the car that I would very much like okay. to own. It's hot, it's noisy, it's cramped, it's pretty undrivable on the road. Anybody sane would say, what on earth do you want that for? But when I was a teenager, I saw a video with one of those cars being driven as it should be, and it has never left my wow. mind. And that is the car that if somebody said to me, right, you've got one wish, that's that it. that would be it. It's been quite the career then with lots of stories. And I wonder if you were now speaking to your 17-year-old self who's kind of sitting in Tuscany somewhere not knowing what to do, what would be the one bit of business advice you'd give to them, or life advice? Well, I think I would say, uh, at the risk of sounding like an old fart, I'd say study harder. Okay. Um, but you do, didn't need to, of course. You, you, no, you went no, straight I just into got, work. I just got lucky. Yeah. I was just very, very lucky to be in the right place at the right time. You know, if my cousin hadn't, my cousin hadn't walked by that showroom and walked in and, mm. and just on the off chance, then I might be now working. Uh, I might be the man who greets you when you walked into Foxton's and ask you if you want a cup of coffee. Uh, or I'd be a face on Crime Watch, um, okay. guilty of some unspeakable financial fraud. <laughs> I was just very, very lucky to be in the yeah. right place at the right time. And I think these days, a generation on, um, it's much more competitive. Uh, every business is more competitive. You need a higher standard of education. I think having languages, as I did, was, was, was helpful. A decent degree would be even more helpful, or at least as helpful, or, or, or dare I say two degrees. You need to be more qualified now. But I think as we touched on before, above all, choose something you love. I've got so many friends who have made 
large amounts of money in the city and other businesses like that. They never talk about their work in private because it's not interesting. Yeah. It's not even interesting to them, let alone to their friends. And they can't wait to leave the office on a Friday afternoon. Now, they're probably the clever ones because they'll be retired by the time they're 50, uh, and I'm not. But at the same time, I think you know, if you're true to yourself, you want to be true to yourself yeah. and do something that you enjoy. And I know that with my kids, I would be far happier if they did something which was relatively humble and just paid the bills, but at least that they loved, yeah, rather than doing something completely soulless that might make a huge amount of money, but not very many friends yeah. and not much respect. Most of all, self-respect. Of course. I think Noel Coward said, work should be more fun than fun. I think that's what I'm trying to aim for. Noel Sometimes Coward always had le mot juste. Yeah, he the did, right, exactly. The right word for every situation. <laughs> so before you go, Simon, I want to ask you these quick fire questions. We ask everybody these. Okay. Um, so you've got to be as honest as possible. Um, Despite being in the car us, business. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, so the first one is, who in the world of business do you most admire? Probably a client of ours, a man called Lawrence Stroll, who started out uh, in the fashion business and has risen to be very, very successful, um, including owning a Formula One team now. Oh, wow. Maybe we'll get him on the podcast one day. Lawrence Stroll. What do you think you'd be doing if you weren't doing this on Crime Watch, presumably? Crime Watch. Right. <laughs> but is there anything else that, that's kind of been a What would I be doing passion? if I wasn't doing this? Um, something creative, I'd like to hope. Yeah. I don't know what, but something, something creative. Do you have any kind of latent creative talents? Do you paint in your spare time? Uh, I definitely do not paint, apart from walls and houses, badly. <laughs> I collect vintage synthesizers oh, wow. okay. from the 1980s, and I still play the same song over and over again. My wife wishes I would learn something else. It's Anola Gave by OMD, oh, 1980. Wow. Okay, That's no, one of my other hobbies, 1980s new wave music. Okay. Um, and I have not yet graduated from that. What is that, that kind of Ultravox in, in that era? It's exactly who played at my birthday party. Really? The yeah. Ultravox? The Ultravox. mid -year. Yeah, wow, yeah. amazing. Yeah. I only know the song Vienna. Uh, I, think, I think a lot of people would say okay. the same thing. But it's a hell of a song. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm really into all that. Okay. Also, that's sort of, there's a lot of sort of 1940s imagery, black and white. And it, yeah. it, it, it all fits. It actually. all fits into that whole car ah. thing as well. Okay, so, yeah, Vienna, uh, OMD, Ultravox, uh, Yellow. Yes. Yellow okay. Swiss, Swiss band, Dieter Meyer, who's the lead singer I've, I've had as a, as a judge at Villa d'Este before. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's that, all woven into your life. That's quite yeah, that interesting. Whole, that whole so maybe you'd be a synth player and a tribute band to. I would to be, Vienna. yeah, I'd be Old in Fox. a very bad tribute okay, band. Good. In a very, very bad band. Well, there's still pub. time for that. I look forward to it. <laughs> um, what's your worst habit? Worst habit? Um, Self indulgence. In what way? Food? Food, definitely food. Um, love good food. That's probably part of my Italian upbringing, but my father was a great uh, bon vivant as well, despite remaining slim all of his life. Mm. Good wine. Okay. Bloody uh, Marys. Bloody Marys. There's an untouched Cheers. Bloody Mary, I should say, in front of Simon. Well, he's it's not, he's it's not, not a time to, it's to not drink It's not completely it. untouched. Not known. <laughs> yeah. um, what do you think you're most proud of so far in your career? I'm not really proud of. I just, is there sounds, one sounds very or? modest, which I'm definitely not. But I don't think there's any. I don't think. Is there an achievement that that stands out? And you think, God, that was pretty good. I guess I am proud of helping to. This sounds rather like the RSPCA for cars, but helping to save some cars that otherwise might have suffered a, a, a worse fate. I mean, it's it's always rewarding in in my world to discover something which has been neglected, to research it properly and to help bring it back to its former glory. And that usually involves restoring some long-forgotten car. Yeah. And some of our videos touch on that as well. Um, 
And I also think trying to give due deference to some of the people in the car world who have been forgotten, some of the old racing drivers, and you'll see that again in some of our films, Um, people whose stories have not been told and that deserve to be told. And I guess just helping, this sounds very noble, which it's not, but helping to record automotive history for future generations, trying to contribute to a a first-hand record so that when all of the people who have helped to make this history, to create this history, whether they're drivers, whether they're engineers, team managers, whatever it might be, um, so that their stories will outlive them. Yeah. And what, on the other side, is your biggest regret or one thing you think you've really messed up at one point? Was there any kind of huge sales that went drastically wrong? Or have you ever crashed a lovely car? I, I have. <laughs> I, I uh, was a 20, what was I, 22 years old. And I blagged the job of delivering a bright red Ferrari Daytona, wow. which we had just sold for the athlete Daily Thompson, okay. um, to a very nice entrepreneur from Munich in Germany. And this was in, uh, this was in I can still remember it, February 1990. It's a date that will okay. <laughs> forever remain in my mind. Um, I, I said, look, um, Rather than transporting the car to Germany, why don't I deliver it to you? It'd be much, much better. You'll save on the transport, and you won't have to go for all the import paperwork. Yeah. It'll make it much simpler. Really, you just wanted to drive the car. Is that true? Of course. <laughs> I mean, who, which 22-year-old would not want to drive a, a red Ferrari across Europe? So I collected this car from our storage in, in Bayswater, and I remember looking at the speedometer on the, on the M2 from London to Dover um, and thinking, bloody hell, I'm doing 150 miles an hour. As we're having a dice with a with a motorcycle, so I sort of eased off a little bit. I remember taking the hovercraft over, as you could in those days. It was very sort of 1970s jet set, and uh, landing in in Calais, uh, driving this thing off the ferry and thinking, or the, off the off the hovercraft and thinking, oh, we're going to have some fun now. And I had all my dodgy music on the passenger seat back in the days of cassette players, and uh, I blasted this thing across Europe. Found some fair, very obscure hotel to spend the night. And the next day, it was Sunday, glorious sunshine, and I thought, wow, this is going to be fun. And I had a great drive along the Autobahn, maxed it out, and that car would do about uh, do about 170, just over 170 miles an hour. And, of course, Autobahn, no speed limit. All of this accompanied by a, by a glorious soundtrack. <laughs> I think it was a battle between the engine and ABBA. <laughs> but uh, fantastic time, and then it was just – I was – Heading near Munich at, 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 by Sunday lunch, and I thought, right, time for a good, a good lunch. Like I said, good food often comes into it. So pulled off the motorway to look for, a, look for a decent restaurant. Minding my own business, going along this dead straight country road, lovely sunny day, and two cars are coming the other direction, and I'm on the right-hand side of the road, despite my car being right-hand drive, but obviously we're in Germany. And in the other direction comes, I can't remember what the other car was, but one of them I still remember was a white Opel Corsa, like a Vauxhall. Mm. And um, so the guy in front slows down to turn off to his right, my left. And the guy behind, because that guy is braking, decides not to wait and pulls out straight into my lane. I slam on the brakes and Ferrari Daytonas, in fact, most vintage Ferraris have fantastic engines, but not very good brakes. Brakes lock up long before the days of ABS and we hit head on. And I was probably doing about 80 kilometers an hour. He was obviously almost at standstill. and I wasn't wearing a seatbelt either. And all my ABBA cassettes flew off the passenger seat into the windscreen. And um, there was a lot of steam arising from the front of the car. Luckily, nobody was hurt. Police turned up. 
and I had to make probably the most difficult conversation, uh, telephone call of my life to the owner of this car to tell him, I'm awfully sorry, but there's been a slight mishap. Oh, no. And he was incredibly kind and, and polite, uh, drove me to Munich, um, bought me a, 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 a stiff drink, gave me a cigarette and said, <laughs> are you okay? And I, and, I, and, I, and I then had to call my boss and tell him what oh, had happened, which wasn't, which wasn't uh, brilliant either. But yeah, so to answer your question, and I touch wood, um, I have uh, the car was fixed um, and it and it worked out okay Fine. because okay, uh, the market at that stage was 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 not great and the car took so long to fix that by then the market had improved okay. and, uh, and he got more back than he would if he'd sold. Well, the that car was your earlier. plan all along, then surely. Uh, of course. <laughs> Is there a, a single phrase or convention that you'd like to banish from the world, whether that's the car world or just something that really annoys you? I suppose people say at the end of the day rather too they much, do. don't they? Yeah. My own. I'm calling it a motto sounds a little bit too intelligent and thought out. But I remember one in my school yearbook, one other one of the other students, um, you know, dispensed this pearl of wisdom, which said, uh, "The reasonable man adapts himself to the world; the unreasonable man adapts the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man." So I have used that as a justification okay. in my life, yeah. and of course, not helped by the fact that I'm a Virgo. Uh, to always, to consider nothing is ever quite good enough, which which can be incredibly frustrating. Yeah. But if in my business, being precise and looking at the details is important. It's what marks you out from the competition from others. Um, and I, rightly or wrongly, maybe wrongly, have 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 followed that throughout my life and throughout my okay. career. Okay, I think Steve Jobs has the same kind of no, I think, similar I think, motto about being. Changing the world or something. I've uh, Steve, 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 Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs's ambitions are probably some, somewhat loftier. <laughs> I think. I think there's a Google saying, okay. um, but it may have been Apple, which is um, the exact opposite of mine, and that is, "Done is better than perfect." Right. Yes. Okay. Which is why I, I take a long time <laughs> to finish projects. Okay. Fine. They're very well done, but they take forever. Okay. Good. Do you have a party trick? I'm sure you must do. Summer up your sleeve. If I do, I'm not going to tell you. Okay, so it's that good. Wow. <laughs> um, this one will be interesting for you, actually. What's your most treasured physical possession? A lot of people say they don't have one because they don't care about physical things, but your whole life has been about cars. If it's not a car, I'm even more intrigued. It's probably... Well, there is a car, of course. I touched on my, my dad's uh, Porsche Carrera RS, and that would be my most, my most treasured car. Treasured possession is probably... It's probably a bottle of wine, which oh, wow. um, which was always tucked away in the corner corner of the cellar at home. It was the last bottle, I think, there when we when we um, moved house, and the last bottle, the, the, about the only bottle that my father left me when he died, and it's a 1928 Magnum of Chateau Aubryon. Oh wow! Probably long since past yeah, its drinkable you, date. No. But it's just something that I've, I've I've grown up with, and it's a sort of a, a, a family memory. Do you keep it on display, or is it tucked away no, safely? It's tucked away in my house in Switzerland in the nuclear shelter, which um, serves as a wine cellar. Okay, right. Do you you don't have any intention to drink it? It'll just be there as an ornament. No, if I could find if I could actually find another bottle that was drinkable, yeah. I would I would buy it and do, drink just, it just to no, find out what it's that. Do, do people still twenty eight was a good vintage. But do they, do they drink bottles from that era? I don't. Yeah, know. Magnum keeps longer than a bottle. Okay, um, so you got a chance. You'd have to you'd have to be sure that it had been kept very very well. I did visit Aubryon a few years ago and asked them if they had one that I could buy. They said they'd get back to me and I'm still waiting to hear back. Okay, right. 
Well, we look forward to an update. Um, and gosh, you may have answered this. Do you have a personal motto? I think I did. Okay, there you go. So the f- final one, and I hope you have a snappy answer to this. Could be a nice way to wrap it up. What's your idea of perfect happiness? I'm sure you can paint us a lovely image of Abba and Ferraris. Abba and Ferraris and James <laughs> Bond. Perfect happiness. I think it's doing something you enjoy. And if that benefits other people, and I'm not saying that, that, that mine does in any altruistic way, other than giving them something beautiful to enjoy, then better still. But uh, if people ask me what is, what, is the, what is the secret to happiness, and not that I profess by any stretch of the imagination to be the person who has the answer to that, it has to be doing something that you enjoy. Absolutely. Simon, thanks very much. Absolute pleasure, Joe. Well, if you enjoyed this episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast, you may well like the Gentleman's Journal magazine, the world's finest quarterly dispatch from the front line of luxury, entrepreneurship and style. In fact, as you may have heard earlier, podcast listeners now get 20% off our annual subscription. Just enter the code POD20, that's P-O-D-2-0, at www.thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. That's POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. And if you really like this episode... Why not rate us five stars on the iTunes store or, of course, wherever you happen to get your podcasts? I think that would be a lovely idea. Anyway, I'll leave you alone now. Bye-bye.